it would be incredibly difficult to say that there was not a deep mood of uncertainty. I mean, look at what we've faced in the political landscape over the last just, I mean, five years, yes, but more pronounced even in the last year. In my opinion, the first trillionaire in the world, not that we should be aiming to to create trillionaires, will probably come from the green transition. I don't think we should be too bleak. It takes a hundred startups to get funded for one or two to be successful, and that is the dynamics of the game. So we need to keep betting on lots and lots of small ideas. From the first-time founders to the funds that back them, innovation needs different. Our episode partner, HSBC Innovation Banking, is proud to accelerate growth for tech and life science businesses, creating meaningful connections and opening up a world of opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Discover more at www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com en-gb. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly chat with the movers and shakers of the UK tech industry and the destination for all things UK tech related. And this week I'm joined by Martha Lane Fox, President of the British Chambers of Commerce and co-founder of LastMinute.com. Welcome, Martha. Thank you. Now, I'm going to take you back in time and ask you about the founding and the starting up of lastminute.com because we were in a very different environment then, weren't we? Not just in terms of the society, but in terms of the sort of ecosystem for startups and the tech industry in general. Yes, it was 1997 when we quit our jobs to start lastminute.com. And, you know, at that point, no one thought that lastminute.com would be successful. That was a complete no-no. The thing that we were trying to wrestle with was trying encouraging people that the internet was going to exist, wasn't going to blow up, and that people would use it to buy things, all of which seemed like a real stretch. And certainly my friends thought I was clinically insane. And I think most investors in London at that point thought that we were as well. So in some ways, you had the same challenges because it was at the beginning of the internet in terms of persuading people. But then we went through a period when there seemed to be vast amounts of money for anybody that wanted to to launch a startup. How do you think and how have you seen that change over the last sort of 40 years? Yeah, it's really incredible. You know, when we, as you said, we were a rare beast to have two relatively young people starting a business in, in 97, 98. And now I think I read the other day that there's a startup created every hour in the UK or maybe London, I can't remember which. It's a completely different environment. There are better networks, there's more funding, there's more of that incredible thing that happens when you start to build an ecosystem and people can learn off each other and share and you get the momentum going. You've got recently huge venture capitalists opening their offices in London. A16Z just opened here, Sequoia's been here. There's there's so much more momentum. It's incredible to see it. But is there a risk in that we have too many startups and therefore it's tricky for, for, for people to find funding? Because it does feel that it is a challenging environment right now uh, for the tech industry because of the wider economic problems. But also, I don't know, do you think there's other reasons why it's challenging at the moment for startups to get funding? There's a lot of things going on, I think, right now. I think it is still important to put it in the kind of bigger trajectory of where the last 10 years has come from and where it's likely to go to in the next 10. You're absolutely right. There's the ebb and flow of the macroeconomic picture, of course. And 
At the moment, there is just a bit more skepticism about some business models. I think investors are looking for revenue in a way that perhaps, or even profitability in a way that perhaps before they were just looking at product or even business plans or founders. And that maybe has shifted slightly because of the economic environment, because as we know, everybody is feeling the pinch. But I don't think we should be too bleak. It takes 100 startups to get funded for one or two to be successful. And that is the dynamics of the game. So we need to keep betting on lots and lots of small ideas. And it's tough. Some of those won't work, but the ones that do are going to be the economic growth of the future, employ people in the future, be the innovation for the UK. So, you know, at that very, very early seed funding level, it's incredibly important to keep the floodgates open, if you like, and to make sure that as many ideas get funded as possible, because it's a difficult game. When we come to scale-ups and, you know, exits, IPOs and so on, the dynamics are, as you know, very different again. And I think that that's where you're seeing a bit more of a squeeze and a pinch, because people are looking really hard at what, what are the business models that are actually proving to have some momentum and some profitability. And it's hard because... There seems to be, I mean, let's just take one topic, artificial intelligence at the moment, pretty much every company, but every company seems to want to big up its AI offering and say it's got AI, even if perhaps really what it does is just a bit of data analytics. So therefore, it becomes hard for investors to sort of sort the the chaff from the corn in some ways. Do you agree that everybody wants a tech startup now and therefore we have to kind of almost have deep knowledge of these subjects in order to know what's going to succeed and what won't. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to a degree. I think there's two things going on. First of all, every company is is digital. You know, this kind of Mm -hmm. absurd notion that you get this difference between a non-digital and digital company. I I don't believe that if you are a not completely non-digital company, you will be here in the next decade. And that's not because I think everything should be on the internet, quite the opposite. But I think you have to use the tools of the modern age to build scale, to use data, to do all the things that we know are um, more effective if you use the, the incredible things that have been invented over the last 20 years. So there's, that's one piece. And the second piece is you're right in a way that there is now perhaps a bit less of a focus just on consumer-facing products um, and more on the deep tech skills. And we see that in the investing portfolios that uh, uh, people are, are really doubling down on. AI, of course, it's a huge topic. I'm not the expert to talk to, but you're right that there's a much more deep technical understanding needed to assess really whether people's products are new, whether they're actually just, as you say, data crunching, whether they've got a kind of closed, huge, large language model, an open one, what the hell they're using, are they a frontier model, all the different terms that get banded about. And I think you couple that with other deep tech that's going on, whether it's in life sciences or whether it's in quantum or whether it's in cyber. And there is definitely a bit of a pull in the in the investment side towards things that are perhaps more B2B business models as opposed to some of the consumer-facing businesses that many of us would recognise and know. Now, I just want to talk briefly about your role at the British Chamber of Commerce, in particular, how that can kind of or, or how you're using that role to help businesses and sort of p- provide, I suppose, the bridge between the business world and the world of politics. So talk a little bit about what the role of the BCC is in that. Um, I've been president of the BCC for about a year. I am a constant disappointment to my children because when I they asked me <laughs> where I was going recently and I said, you know, boys, I'm, I'm president of the, the British Chambers of Commerce. And they looked at me absolutely flabbergasted and said, Mama, no, you're not. That's Joe Biden. And I was <laughs> 
slightly uh, put back in my box because obviously I'm a bit of a disappointment if they're trying to hold me up in parallel to the US president. But it's a fantastic <laughs> role. The British, British Chambers of Commerce is an amazing network of 100,000 businesses around the world, 83 different individual chambers and a local level. So, you know, you have a chambers in Stoke-on-Trent, you have a chambers in Edinburgh, you have a chambers in Poole, all these different places, but you've also got a chambers in Singapore, you've got a chambers in Greece, and they are doing a bunch of different things, a lot of local networking and helping businesses grow in their local area, you know, become a really um, powerful force in their in their communities, in their local economies. But they're then also working together at a national level, and that, that's where my role comes in, to feedback what those 100,000 businesses are feeling about Britain, about the opportunities in Britain, about different planks of the British economy. And we talk all the time to the Chancellor, the Shadow Chancellor, the PM, the opposition leader, business leaders, to, to build the case for both British business, British investment, but also to ask for things. And so, for example, recently the financial statement, as the autumn statements we all know that the Chancellor gave, and the notion of being able to do planning and tax investments and get credits on R&D, lots of things that the British Chambers of Commerce had lobbied for directly into the Chancellor. And I think Siobhan, who runs the organisation, was on speed dial from Jeremy Hunt because he called her just to check that everybody in the membership network was going to be happy with the things he'd put in. So, it, you know, it's a great way for government to get that fast track into what the business community is thinking because it's so plugged in at a very local level. But it's also an incredible opportunity, you know, for me and what I hope to do is partly obviously political, but also just keep building the case for the strength of Britain, the strength of our businesses. I think sometimes, especially post-Brexit, we've got a tendency to be a bit down on ourselves, to not quite sure what our role in the future is. The tech sector has built an incredible narrative for itself over the last decade. But if you look more broadly across the economy, I think we can do a better job at saying the importance of business, the incredible businesses that we have here, and how we're going to power up the economy and provide all the services that we want because of good business growth. Now, what is the sort of temperature, I suppose, in the business world at the moment, given we're in sort of slightly uncertain political times, an election next year, maybe a change of government? Is that unsettling kind of the, the community or, or is there a feeling that things will carry on as normal or, or change radically for the better? I think you're absolutely right. It would be incredibly difficult to say that there was not a deep mood of uncertainty. I mean, look at what we've faced in the political landscape over the last just five years yet. Yes, but more pronounced even in the last year. Yes, we have had the stability most recently, but we have got an election coming up and not just an election here. I think I read that there are 24 elections globally and, you know, a lot of businesses face international challenges and they're not just in one market. They want to know what's going to happen in the US, other countries they might be operating in. So it, it is an uncertain political time. And then you layer on top of that, not just the election cycle and the kind of vagaries of people going in and out of their jobs and how that might change policy. But of course, we're also looking at still a war in Ukraine, the very uh, horrific situation going on in the Middle East. And the climate crisis on top of that and the other things that we know we're still reckoning with. So, yes, and as everyone will appreciate, business wants certainty. They want to know that when they're investing in a, you know, to give an example of you know, the green transition that every business wants to do the right thing for, you get different time frames and you get different policy positions from different parties and different leaders in, you know, relatively short spaces of time. And that's very destabilizing when you're investing. So business needs certainty. There are not so many things that are providing certainty at the minute. And I think that is extremely challenging. And we see it in the investment numbers, right? We can see that businesses are not investing, not investing in R&D, not investing in people. And then we see that people are not investing into the UK economy. And 
this just this week we had a, I wasn't there, but a big global investment conference. Prime Minister standing up quite rightly doing the rally in Kai for Britain to try and encourage him with investment. And those things do really matter and they flow through into the economy in multiple ways. HSBC Innovation Banking, our partner for this episode, provides commercial banking services, expertise and insights to the technology, life science and healthcare, private equity and venture capital industries. To find out why innovation needs different, go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com en-gb. So what would your sort of advice be to businesses in terms of what they focus on, given that sort of situation? You've mentioned climate there. Is that, do you think, the the key priority for businesses at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to have just one, isn't it? But the things that we're looking at at the British Chambers, I think, form interesting backdrop to all of this. We we have a business council and we have sub sub councils, if you like. I, I chair that business council. We have lots of businesses, global businesses sitting on it representing Britain and we, the five strands that, that feed into our work are, you know, digitization. Of course, as we've just discussed, every business is thinking about how digital they should be, how much the pace of change is changing their their products, changing their business models. We talk about global business, you know, how businesses should be expanding overseas and also getting investment in from overseas. We talk about the green economy. Of course, as you say, this is not a a choice. It's happening. We want to make sure that our businesses are well-placed to do it and to capture the immense value that will be created in the green economy. But we also talk about the other priorities that I think every business is feeling right now about people and skills. You know, I've been staggered when I've travelled around out of just the digital economy, the incredible depth of the skills challenge that we face. You know, people finding it hard to recruit people, feeling it hard to retain people, feeling it, finding it hard to retrain people, all those different axes. And then finally, the thing I think we found people are thinking about is how to build local place and strength in local areas and bits of our our country. So those are the priorities that we see our members wrestling with. And I think, you know, it's a kind of a bit of a jigsaw puzzle at some points you'll be thinking oh my goodness this is all about the green economy and then other times you're just trying to fill the gaps in your business the people that you you can't find so on the green economy just while we're talking about that while we speak cop is preparing to start when this goes out i think it will have finished what would your advice be to the politicians that are gathered there in terms of rather than just you know a talking shop some actual solid results that are really going to impact on on businesses in a good way yeah and you know i i live with a a man a husband who is obsessed with the ocean and saving the ocean and investing in ocean innovation so he's just literally quite just now walked out the door to COP and we've been having this kind of debate constantly about what are the things that governments need to do. And of course, government is fundamental in regulating industries and helping us transition away from fossil fuels. In my opinion, they should be doing this much, much more quickly. But in the end, I do also think it's going to be business that will drive this change. So every business just wants, as we've talked about, those frameworks in which they know the guidelines around the timeframes in their, their local markets. That's part of it. But they should then, I think, everybody needs to be looking at how to become net zero as soon as possible, how to think about whatever aspects of their business are still transforming into the green economy. And then also the opportunities within that. You know, 
the economy, we live in a capitalist society. We may not like that sometimes, but we do. And it is an engine for change and for growth. And I think, in my opinion, the first trillionaire in the world, not that we should be aiming to create trillionaires, will probably come from the green transition. And there is always going to be massive economic gains to be had. So if nothing else, um, then we should be looking at those opportunities. And there's no reason why Britain can't take and grab some of those for, for itself. So I'm cautiously optimistic about our capacity to reinvent. The world is going to look very different. I don't think it's going to be the same. We've passed the point of being able to preserve exactly what we've got. But, you know, across every axis, in new fuels, in the ocean, in how we think about nature, there are going to be opportunities and it's inherent on every business just to to think carefully and to make those steps to to move us to the green economy as quickly as possible. And you also mentioned skills and the kind of changing nature of our workforce. What is it that you are advising businesses to think about in that respect? It's very hard, isn't it, to prepare for a world where we don't quite know the role AI will play, but but we're pretty certain it's going to play quite a major role and we both need to be trained in understanding it, but also be prepared for it, perhaps taking our job. Yes, I'm completely right. I mean, I think it's not just AI. I think it's also in the kind of, if you like, the real world economy. If we think of, look at where the jobs market is going to shift and change, we need massive amount of growth in the capacity for care and the skills around caring for older people or even younger people and people with um, challenges who need that care. So it's it's a multiplicity of things. Some has to come from government. But, you know, there's no doubt that Brexit changed the skills base of our country, and we need to make sure that we're being smart about that. We're not being short sighted about immigration, and that we're building the skills base that we have. Have people here on short-term contracts, but we also are generous in how we think about opening our country to people who can help build our economy, and that is so fundamental. But for businesses themselves, you know, I think there's three things. I think it really is about new opportunities, making sure you're reaching deep into a diverse workforce. You know, we know that we don't access the skills of all the communities that we have in this country, and we could do a better job in every company, in every area of the country in doing that. It's also about thinking of lifelong learning in your job. You know, work is just going to be different from here on in. You might have a been required to do one set of skills but that will look very different over the next decade and helping the workforce be equipped for that is going to be an incredibly important piece of the puzzle and then it's also about new opportunities flexibility thinking about the older part of the workforce you know when you retire in quotation marks I think that's going to look different I think you're going to think about the kind of people talk about an encore career and I think we need to be more ambitious and creative in the whole lifespan of people it's not impossible that the majority of people are going to live well over 100 in a very short time frame. I think, of course, it's going to significantly change both the structure of work and the nature of work. And we need to start having those conversations. So there's some big things in that, but there's also some small things too. So those are the three things I think personally. And you mentioned earlier that you're not an expert in AI, but you have warned against not getting hysterical about it. Do you think we, in the last year, obviously, (laughs) we've been through a lot of journeys with AI, uh, especially with open AI. Um, do you think the hysteria is being dialed down at all or, or or do you think we're still in a place where we're not having the right conversations about that tech particularly? No, I mean, I think it, it is interesting, isn't it? I'm a huge fan of someone I'm happy to call a friend, Dame Wendy Hall, who's a computer scientist who's been doing this stuff since the 80s. And she's a brilliant person to talk to because she's always 
she's realistic, but she is also, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but somewhat alarmed by some aspects of the change, right? So Wendy's very good at saying, this has been going on since 1980, right? We've been basically using AI and developing AI for 30, 40, 50 years. But now the scales have fallen from people's eyes because of the capacity for compute power, because of the large language models, because of the consumer interface effectively that OpenAI created in the way that we can now all play with it. So it is important to put it in that historical sweep, but it's also important to be, I think, moderate to take, never to take an extreme view and listen to the experts like Wendy. You know, Wendy is not an alarmist. I don't think she thinks that automated general intelligence is going to take over the world immediately, but she is also warning against the very, very profound shift in information flows back to this, you know, we're talking about the, the elections coming up over the last, last year. And I think Wendy would say very, very, very important to focus intensely on where the information flows are coming from and how large language models are being used within all that. You know, she's not saying death and destruction from multiple robots, that robots are going to press the button and we're all going to be destroyed. But I think she is saying that this election's coming up. We're going to face significant challenges and we need to think carefully about that and companies need to think carefully about it. So, you know, I listen to people like that who take a middle course, but also show that there are points at which we need to step in. And I think, you know, for your average person like me or you, Jane, sorry to call either of us average, but you know, we have, I think, an incredible um, ability right now to play with this stuff. And I've talked about a kind of dereliction of duty if we don't. And I really do think that. I think anybody in the leadership position or anybody, there's no excuse. You know, download an app, play around with it, see what you think, because it, you don't have to be technical. It's not about being a technologist. It's about being interested and curious and it's it's on you if you don't do that, in my opinion. That's that's really good advice, and I, I 100% agree. I've definitely been playing around with all the tools quite a lot. Now, I'm going to ask you to put another hat on very briefly, and that's your hat as Chancellor of the Open University. And I just want to ask you... Yeah, I don't you... have a hat as, in that role, but I do have a really fabulous robe. Put on your robe, which is very appropriate. And I'm going to ask you what you make of the British government's uh, review of spin-outs and the advice that uh, universities need to think about the stake that they take in startups that are found within their walls. Increasingly, we're seeing startups coming out of university. And, and what's your thoughts on that review? Yeah, I, I really like this in concept, sorry. I think we have an incredibly rich base of universities in this country. And one of the things that we don't think about and shout about enough is the top rankings that we constantly achieve on a global basis. People that want to come and study in our universities, the immense intellectual power that we have in those universities and the, the, the importance that they serve into into society, but they, as we know, the bridges between university and the economy are still being built. You know, we've got clusters of incredible activity, you know, around Cambridge, the things that have been built, there's a corridor around Leeds, as I understand it, where there's kind of some cybersecurity businesses being spun out. But I think there's a lot more we can do, a lot, lot more. So it's great to see this. And also not all universities, but many are very, very rich. They have massive investment funds. They could use that, I think, to build more of a kind of economic clout as well as the intellectual clout. So I like this as a notion. I think it's important. I don't think 
intellectual life is just about commercializing it. Of course, you know, some intellectual life is just important for the future of humanity. And just because we should be investing, if you like, in the arts and in philosophy and in the classics and all the things that I was lucky enough to study. But there are some aspects of intellectual life that can be commercialized and should be and need to be scaled up. And we don't historically have a good track record in doing that. So I think this is super important. You know, the OU has been part of some commercial spin-outs, but has also been part of some amazing commercial partnerships and partnerships with content providers and media companies to use the amazing clout of the research that the OU has. So this is a really rich area and I think it's vital that we use what we have even more to our advantage. And obviously universities are spread around the country. Do you think that that, uh, by encouraging the spin-outs from there, we're going to see a more diverse uh, tech ecosystem. I really hope so. You know, I, I was lucky enough because my British Chambers of Commerce hat on that I was lucky enough to visit an area in Nuneaton recently called the Mira Technology Park. And I mentioned it just because it was kind of an incredible mashup between Warwick University close by, some investment from a Japanese technology company, and then this enormous um, investment in just a huge piece of the land where they were doing advanced manufacturing, some extremely interesting defense stuff, which I can't tell you about where I have to shoot you, and <laughs> a lot of high-tech stuff. And so it's those kinds of collaborations when you see a university, some investment, a local area come together that I think we've got a lot of opportunity to do more and to and to scale up the things that we're already doing. And finally, because uh, we're running out of time, I want you to take off your your gorgeous robe as a university person and put on instead your ermine robe, which is even more glorious, I should imagine. Thank God we don't walk around in them when we go there. I I was in yesterday and I was not prancing around in my robe. Oh, I'm quite disappointed to hear that, actually. But the question is, you know, what is the impact that the House of Lords can have on tech and business policy, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting place that we have created in our institutional landscape in this country. You know, the the House of Lords is much less powerful than I think people might imagine if they give it any thought at all. Everything the House of Lords does is to prop up and build on what the primary legislator, the House of Commons, um, determines and does, right? And there's an immense amount of work through different mechanisms, partly through legislation, of course, partly through just the noise and the voice that the House of Lords has. But in the end, the House of Lords is only ever in service to our colleagues in the House of Commons. And that's incredibly important. So, you know, working on legislation like the online harms bill, which MPs often don't have time to go through in massive detail. I I wasn't part of this, but my colleagues who did, they added lots of amendments to, to tighten it up, to make it better. All of those amendments go back to the House of Commons and they think about whether or not they should accept them and whether they feel right. So the House of Lords is kind of this incredible referral unit, if you like, full of expertise. Of course, we have other mechanisms that we can use. We can ask questions of the government. We can challenge them. We can add our support and weight. But when it works well, it isn't in standing in opposition to the government of the day or the opposition. It's in support of them and trying to get into the next level of detail, which often MPs aren't able to do. And that's when it works well, you know, and you can raise issues, you can debate issues, but always in partnership with the people that are elected in this country. Certainly always an interesting time in politics, that's for sure. Well, sadly, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of the UKTM podcast. Thank you, Martha. It's been absolutely fascinating as ever to talk to you. Thank you to everyone who's listening. Remember, you can get in touch on UKTN at LinkedIn and Twitter. You can also check out the latest news at www.uktech.news. You can get in touch with me on those platforms I mentioned as well. But until next time, it's goodbye from me. 
This podcast is brought to you by HSBC Innovation Banking, the power behind the UK's forward thinkers, future makers and leap takers. They're helping to ignite the bold ideas that reshape our world. Go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en dash gb to find out how innovation needs different. Different.